The idea of dying to ourselves is not one that we hear a whole lot about, but it's at the very bedrock of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Dying to oneself has about it a renunciation of self-interest. And such self-denial frees us of the need to always have to celebrate our successes. Here's why. is because any success which we have as a result of dying to ourselves is directly related to what Christ has done through us. Remember what Jesus says in the book of John chapter 12? He was really speaking of himself when he said, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And later, Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How in the world are we to glorify God? Well, it's very clear. We have to die to ourselves. We have to die to self-interest in favor of focusing our attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament teaches that dying to oneself is the end of personal ambition. The dead have lost, along with their pulse and their respiration, they have lost their selfishness. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I die daily. What was he saying? He was saying, I daily clear out all self-centered living from my life. That takes vigilance on our part. It takes diligence on our part. We are to, with Paul, die daily, remembering what Jesus says to us. We are to take up our cross, an instrument of death, daily, not occasionally, but daily. We have to exercise vigilance over our fleshliness. The Apostle Paul wrote about love so eloquently in 1 Corinthians 13. And among those things which he says are characteristic of this sort of love, the love that's epitomized in the person of Jesus Christ, he says, love does not insist on its own way. Wow. I would say that's an absence of self-interest, wouldn't you? And love keeps no record of wrongs. We who travel through this life are wounded by other people. Many times, people that we are close to. Many times, people to whom we are close who are followers of Jesus Christ. But the Bible says love keeps no record of wrongs. You have to be void of self-interest not to keep an account of those wrongs which are done to you. There are people here today who are held hostage by the wounds that others have inflicted upon them because they have not learned to die to themselves, to deny themselves. We are to, as followers of Christ, marginalize rather than magnify ourselves by putting Jesus Christ at the center of our lives. We are to, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Jesus, when He is the centerpiece of a person's life, He is the focus of that person's life. And we fix our eyes on Jesus and not occasionally, once again, the Scripture would indicate that we're to keep on fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus lives in us if we know Him. 
And Jesus, by His Spirit, gives us the power to overcome all the injustices which are aimed our way, all the misunderstandings of our lives because we don't understand everything which happens to us, many of which things are very debilitating, very negative toward us. Jesus in us is the picture of Himself living His life through us. You know that Jesus did not have His own personal agenda when He came to the earth. In John chapter 5, we hear Him say things like this, The Son can do nothing of Himself, but only what He sees the Father doing. The Son does not take His own initiative, but the Son has come to do the will of God. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if Jesus Christ is in your life, and if you have set Him apart as Christ, as Lord in your heart, then He is going to live that sort of life through you too. He's going to cause you to want to depend upon Him just like He depended upon the Father for all things. In answer to the question which I raised a moment or two ago, how are we to respond and regard ourselves when it comes to this whole matter of God's will for our lives? Well, let's look at our text of Scripture for the answer to that. Verse 3 of Romans chapter 12 says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. There's our answer. How are we to regard ourselves? The foundation of sound judgment of ourselves is a right understanding of God. If you and I know God, if we make a career, a life out of getting to know God, then we're not going to be caught up in ourselves. We're going to be freed of our selfishness because we're going to be centered upon the one who epitomizes selflessness, namely Jesus Christ. God is a giver. He is the giver of life in Romans 6.23. Keep your place here. Probably 90% of you could quote Romans 6.23, but let's take a close look at it for a moment. Romans 6.23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death. That's sobering, isn't it? The result of my sin would lead and must, in fact, lead to death. And the good news is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ died for my sin. Somebody had to die for it. Because sin exacts a wage. It demands a wage. And it deserves a wage. And the wage is death. Jesus died for me. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note the nature of eternal life. It's a free gift from God. It cannot be earned, it is not deserved, and God is the giver of life. He gave us life by giving us His Son, Jesus, 
who himself describes himself as the life, the resurrection, and the life. God loved us so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. Surplus of life. John writes in his epistle, the fifth chapter, he says, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Apart from Jesus Christ, we will never have life as God intended it. It's a life that's above just physical life. It's spiritual life. God is not only the giver of life. He's also the giver of faith. Look at verse 3 again. Let's read it one more time. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Not only does God give us life, He has to give us life. Why does He have to give us life? Because we don't have the kind of life that is resident in the person, the only person who has it inherently in Him is Jesus Christ. He is the life. So the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, we came into this physical life dead. And we needed to be resurrected. And that was something which only Christ could do. And He gives us His life. The Bible says we are now being saved by the life of Jesus. What a wonderful thing to consider. And the Lord then gives us faith. Faith is a gift. Look at verse 6 of this section of Scripture. Paul says, And since we have gifts that differ, differ according to the grace given to us. So not only is God the giver of life, He's also the giver of faith. But in addition to this, He gives us His grace. Paul express, expresses this about himself. In verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Look at chapter 11 for a moment, verse 6, where Paul talks about this whole matter of grace. He says in verse 6 of Romans 11, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. He's talking about our salvation here. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So grace is completely void of any effort on any human being's part to make himself or herself right with God. It's the work of God through and through. That is, our salvation is the work of God in every aspect. With regard to the giving of life, the doctrine of being regenerated, then in the matter of justification... We are justified by faith, the Bible says in Romans 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is all bundled up in the grace of God. Now look at chapter 15 of Romans for a moment. And let's see how Paul reiterates what he says over in verse 3 of chapter 12. He says, but I have written very boldly to you on some points. And that's probably putting it mildly. 
so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. How did Paul have the capacity to be so bold? How were his words and how are they still used by the Spirit of God to convict us of our need of Him, our total need of Him, and how He empowers us to live this life. How does that happen? It's because it was by God's grace, not because of Paul's genius. It could be argued, and probably rightly so, that in his natural life, Paul was a genius. When you look at his accomplishments prior to coming to know Jesus, His life was full of accomplishment. In fact, it was all about accomplishment. His life was designed from his own perspective to impress God with how lucky God was to have him on his team. And then also to impress his peers and all those whom he would say were under him in terms of being beneath him as far as religious devotion was concerned. He devoted his life to that end. And... He was a man who accomplished an incredible amount. But in his own words, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, he says, All my accomplishments are like a pile of dung, is what he says. That's the way he viewed his life before coming to know Jesus. And he says here in Romans 12, 3, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, the writing of the book of Romans was, was the work of the grace of God in and through this man whom we know is Paul. Let's get back to the foundation of sound judgment of ourselves. It's the right understanding of God. Among other things, and perhaps paramount, God is a giving God. He has given us who are in Christ life. He has given us faith. He has given us grace. Now, in that, there is the cure for low self-image. If you know God, like David, for instance, knew God, the great shepherd, king, poet, warrior. This man knew God intimately. Psalm 139 is a beautiful example of that. He talks in the first quarter of that psalm about the omniscience of God, and he's wowed by that. And then he talks in the second quarter of that great psalm about the omnipresence of God, and he's overwhelmed by that. And then in verse 14, he makes what sounds like a very egotistical comment. He crows Some would say these words, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We tend to fixate on the last part of that where he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But we ignore the way he introduces this. I praise you. David understood what the Apostle Paul understood and what we all must understand if we understand who we are as human beings in Christ. Everything that we need for godliness and for usefulness to God has been given to us by God in the person of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. When we know God is giver, we are able to have sound judgment of ourselves. Are you struggling with your self-image? Get to know the Lord better. 
Read the Word of God. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you as He reads the Word. Ask Him to show you who He is and consequently who you are. Let's move on now in the remaining time to look at the fruit of sound judgment of ourselves. There are three things that I'm going to mention. The first of which is peace. In the book of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul, prior to coming to Christ, from his vantage point as a follower of Jesus, was a total loss because he lived exclusively for himself. It was all lost. But he met Jesus and everything changed. Prior to his coming to Christ, he was a restless, driven man, always striving, but never arriving. Do you ever feel like that? I'm always striving, but I don't seem to be able to reach that point of rest in my life. The Christian life is designed to enable us to enter into the rest of God. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke and learn from me. Be discipled by me. And therein lies rest when you take Jesus' yoke upon you. It's a symbolic way of saying you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. It's our putting Jesus where He belongs. We team up with Jesus, and Jesus gives us the power to live the life to which He has called us. After Paul received Christ, he was a contented man. Not a complacent man. He was not one who's ever settled for mediocrity. He said late in his life, in his 60s, he said, not that I've already obtained all this, talking about that intimacy with God that he had begun a journey on, but he had not finally reached that place of perfection, is what he was saying. Not that I've already obtained all this, but I press on to take hold of that for which God has taken hold of me. The wonder of the Christian life is we are perfectly accepted in Jesus Christ. We have every power that we need to live the Christian life. And we have the privilege of continuing to grow in this life to become more like Christ. Unbelievable what God has done for us. And there's no place for feelings of inferiority among those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a place of great peace, isn't it? Paul did not settle for mediocrity, but he was one who was the recipient of Christ's choice of him first. Christ chose him. He wasn't thinking one second about giving his life to Christ when Christ intercepted him on the road to Damascus as he had a warrant in his hand for the arrest and punishment of people who were descendants of Abraham in Damascus who had turned coat and run to this so-called Christ and he met Jesus on the road. He was chosen. And not only that, he was satisfied with Christ's choices for his life. He gave him the role of an apostle. This was indeed a huge role, but included in that choice of him to be Christ's apostle, we know, was the promise that he was going to suffer greatly 
That's not necessarily the best way to start a career, is it? It's going to be a suffering time in your life. That's what he said. But he had peace. He said in the book of Philippians, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Why? Because Jesus was in his life. Jesus was the one who gave him peace and power for living the Christian life. The fruit of sound judgment of ourselves includes peace. Would you agree? It also includes power. Grace, we normally think of grace is that necessary ingredient that opens the door for us to receive eternal life. And there is great truth in that. It's by grace we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so nobody can boast. Awesome. But grace is much more than that. It's the power by which we live the Christian life. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not your own power, but in the grace that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, grace is the power for living the Christian life. He supplies the necessary energy we need to go forward and accomplish the tasks for which we were chosen by Him. Paul, having difficulty in his life with probably a physical ailment, asked Jesus to take it away, this thorn in the flesh, as Paul describes it. And you maybe remember what Jesus said. He said, I'm not going to take it away. My power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. What is that all about? As long as I'm strong, where does the attention go? It goes to me, doesn't it? But when we are weak, then we are strong as we trust in the grace of God. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I invite you to go back to Romans 15 for just a moment and look at two verses, verses 18 and 19. Look at what Paul writes here. He says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's a picture of a right estimate of oneself, a sound judgment. And this should be our viewpoint, too. And notice what he goes on to say, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. There's where the power came from. From the Spirit, signs and wonders. God did great things through Paul, but Paul took absolutely no credit for anything which God, Jesus, and the Spirit did through him. So, the fruit of the sound judgment of ourselves, peace. You need some peace? Are you restless? Well, it's found in Knowing the power of God's grace in our lives. And also, trusting the Lord to exercise His power through us. But here's the one that really stands out to me. In verse 3, if you look at it again. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. 
but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Do you know that humility is largely misunderstood? Allow me a definition. It's really a definition that I borrowed from a man named Fred Smith. He said, humility is not denying the power that you have, but acknowledging its source. If we know Christ, we have a lot of power. But it's not something which comes from us. It comes from Him who has come to indwell us. It's the power of the Spirit of God. Here's some things that people who are humble don't do. They don't brag. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. But let him who boasts boast in this. This is the writing of Jeremiah, quoting God, that he knows me. If there's one thing you and I might boast in is we know God. And how do we know God? God chose to reveal Himself to us. When Paul was passing, excuse me, when David was passing the baton to his son Solomon, and he had Solomon standing in front of all the leaders of Israel, the military leaders, the political leaders, the economic leaders, all the leaders were assembled. And he gave him this word of advice. Know the God of your father. That was the advice. That's what God would say to you today and to me today. Know the God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Then there will be no room for bragging. None of us likes to brag too much anyway. We, know we don't like other people who brag for sure, do we? We don't like them. C.S. Lewis says the one thing that we're quickest to see in others is pride. And also it's the thing we see last in ourselves. We all have to guard against our own insertion of ourselves into situations. Now here's another thing that the humble do not do. Not only do they not brag, they also do not belittle themselves. What are you talking about, Mike? I thought people are humble or just sort of... You know, walk around slump-shouldered and can't look you in the eye. And when they shake your hand, it's like a cold fish, you know. Well, that's not a humble person. We don't belittle ourselves. Here's the problem. With bragging about me or belittling myself, who is the central figure in both of those activities? Self, right? And here's what's true of a person who has the right understanding of himself, sound judgment of himself. A person who has sound judgment herself has this uncanny ability to forget about herself or himself. It happens. Why? Because we're focused on Christ. And we know we're trusting Him to lead us and accomplish His way through us. The 30th president of the United States of America, probably all of you could tell me who that is, Calvin Coolidge. He's one of the most nondescript presidents in our history. He was much maligned by the press. He was maligned by his political enemies, both within and without the Republican Party, which he served as president through. His first address to Congress 
Listen to what he proposed. He proposed a federal anti-lynching law. Can you imagine in 1923 it was still legal state to state to lynch somebody without a trial? That's ridiculous, isn't it? He also endorsed a minimum wage for female workers. Women were not paid the same as men were for their work. Unbelievable. And here's a Republican of all things advocating minimum wage for all regardless of gender. And he urged a constitutional amendment to prohibit child labor. Child labor laws were non-effective at this time. So here was a man who accomplished a lot. Listen to what he said upon taking the office of the presidency. He succeeded Warren G. Harding, who had had really one of the worst presidencies in all of American history. He was the vice president. He took over for him, completed his term. He said, Coolidge said, it is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country when the president knows he is not a great man. Coolidge understood what real humility was. He was used by God to do some positive things in our country, understanding that everybody who rises to a position of authority in any realm is placed there by God. That's what the Bible says. He was that kind of man. Let me talk a a moment about King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. His life was a miserable wreck. His king. Perhaps you know that the nation of Israel clamored for a king. And they came to Samuel, the prophet, who was also the judge of Israel. And they said to him, they said, give us a king. And it grieved Samuel's heart for two reasons. One was God was the king of Israel. That's the most important reason for his grieving. And he was a little on the selfish side. He was hurt, just like you and I would be, that the people were rejecting him. And God said to Samuel, don't worry about your being rejected because they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And God says, I'm going to point you to the man who is to be the king. And he pointed out this man Saul. And when Samuel saw Saul, Saul, according to the description of Scripture, was as handsome as any other man in the kingdom. As handsome as any other man. And in addition to that, he was a whole head taller than anyone else. There was a private ceremony of inaugurating him as king, an anointing by Samuel the prophet. And then there was a public ceremony planned. Samuel came to the village where this man Saul lived. He's looking for him because he's wanting to publicly coronate him as king. And he cannot find him. And he's hiding in the baggage. He's trying to hide out. It's hard for a man who's about six or eight inches taller than everybody else to hide, isn't it? But he's hiding in the baggage. There is some indication prior to his hiding out as to why he did this. When Samuel said, you're going to be king, this was his response. He didn't say, you got the right man, Samuel. He didn't say that. This is what he said. I am from the least of the tribes of Israel. 
I am from the tribe of Benjamin. Fewer people in the tribe of Benjamin than any other of the tribes of Israel. He said, in addition to that, I am from the least of the families. My family is the smallest within the smallest tribe. What was he saying? Hey, I'm not your man. What he misunderstood was what we often misunderstand when we are called by God and he calls us into service. And he does that for all of us. We're going to see that before I finish this morning. He calls us into service. None of us is up to the task. One of the big red flags, if you sense God's calling you into some work, is you say to yourself and everybody else, I can handle this. It's a misunderstanding. It's about a call to deny yourself and to die to yourself and to trust completely in the Lord. Samuel never learned that lesson, evidently. And it made him a fugitive from God. He was hiding really from God when he was hiding out of the baggage. God had given him an ominous responsibility and he was afraid. Let me quote to you two sentences from Calvin Miller's book, The Unchained Soul. He says, psychological inferiority creates spiritual fugitives. If we depend on our psyche to get where we want to go, and your psyche is your soul, the soul is made up of your mind, your emotions, and your intellect. If I depend on my strength of will... If I depend upon my intelligence, if I depend upon my composure to enable me to accomplish great things for God, I'm barking up the wrong tree. It's not going to happen. It makes me a spiritual fugitive. And that was really what happened to Saul. You know his story. It was a sad ending to what could have been a very fruitful life. Miller goes on to say, we flee every role in God's cosmic drama because we suspect the quality of our acting is poor. And we would be right. That is what you would call hypocrisy. Trying to be something we never were created to be and trying to do something that only God can do. And he does it through people like us. So humility... The humble person does not brag about himself or herself, does not belittle himself or herself. But the humble person is freed to serve others. Look at verse 4. I wish we had time for this. I encourage you to take advantage of finding your place in ministry, the seminar, which Pastor Sam spoke of on the video announcement scheduled on the 26th of August. If you've not been through that, it's a great opportunity to learn who you are including what your spiritual gifts are. Verse 4 here says, in chapter 12 of Romans, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. And then we're going to look at these gifts in short order. But let's understand, I had no choice regarding the gift or gifts the Lord gave me spiritually. I had no choice in that. And I need to be satisfied with the gifts He's given to me. 
I need to cultivate those gifts. I need to take to heart what the Bible says when it says, do not neglect the gift of God that was given to you. That's for all of us. We all have at least one gift. Some of you have multiple gifts. We must not neglect them. Why? They were not given to us to admire. They were not given to us to impress other people. They were given to us to serve the body of Christ. To get our eyes off of ourselves, our eyes on the Holy Spirit, who gave the gifts to us by His own volition, and to serve the body of Christ and therefore glorify the Lord. So, don't whine about which gift you didn't get. But, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you, is what the Bible says. If you've let the coals of the Spirit's gift in you grow cold, begin to blow on them and fan them into flame again so God can use you more effectively. Let's look at these gifts. There are two types, basically. In the book of First Peter, we read there are two types of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. All the gifts are for serving. And let's read about these gifts. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. The word prophecy literally means to stand before and to shine. That's what it really means, literally. Prohiste me is the word. To stand before and shine. And the idea is to shine the Word of God. This is obviously a speaking gift. And it's a gift that is not one that can be rehearsed in the sense that someone like me would give a message like this. And I have studied in preparation. I have sought to rightly divide the Word of truth and bring a lesson or a teaching to you. It's different from the gift of teaching. It's a spontaneous gift that is given for the moment. The Word of God given for the moment. Always in connection with the truth of God. It would never contradict what we find in the Bible. But God uses people to do His work this way. For a fuller explanation of this gift, you might wish to look at 1 Corinthians 14.3, where Fuller definition is given. The next gift is obviously a serving gift. If service, it is serving. And people might say, oh man, I got left out. All I got was the gift of service. Don't insult God, Spirit, by saying that you were given something inferior if you were given a serving gift. So important. We have so many people who so willingly and joyfully serve under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, serve the body. Or he who teaches in teaching, there's another speaking gift, doesn't need any elaboration. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. The word exhort, some translations translated encourage, and that is also a good translation. It's a word which was used, for instance, outside the New Testament to describe a general exhorting his troops before they go into battle. Many of you are military people. You've been in combat. And you know the importance of getting leadership from your commander. Whether it's a platoon leader, a squad leader, a commander of a company, a battalion, whatever. It's important to get that kind of encouragement to go in and fight the battle. The gift of exhortation is a gift which is used by the Lord to help people find solutions 
to problems which they face. And here again, the Word of God is the basis for such exhortation. Here's another serving gift. He who gives with liberality. There are people in our church who have a gift for giving that's extraordinary. All of us are called to give. Thank God that you are responsive to God's command to give. And there's such joy in giving. But there are some people who have an unusual capacity for this matter of giving. Thank God for giving such people and to give with liberality. He who leads with diligence. Leadership is tiring. But people who have the gift of leaders, this word was used, for instance, to describe the captain of a seafaring vessel, who would be at the rudder and direct the rudder, or at the helm and steering with the wheel, giving orders about the raising and lowering of sails, the direction the ship was going to take. Leaders are servants that are needed in the body of Christ. And then the last one, again, a serving gift, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The person who has mercy has extraordinary mercy. Are you to show mercy as a believer in Christ? Well, listen to what Jesus says. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And if you aren't merciful, if you read a little further there in Luke's treatment of this, in Luke 6, what you discover is, if you're not merciful, when the time comes for you to need mercy, it's not going to be there. Because there's a relationship between my showing mercy and my receiving mercy in my time of need. And we all will find ourselves there someday in need of mercy. But the person who has mercy has just this huge heart. I heard one woman described this way, who had the gift of mercy. The person described her to me in this way. She said to me, this woman is just one big heart. Now let me tell you about people who have the gift of mercy. And this explains the expression of Paul here. He shows mercy with cheerfulness. Because people who show mercy take the burdens of other people upon themselves. They just heap them and heap them and heap them on themselves. My pastor, who was my discipler as well, he mentored me. Still does in a sense, 40 some odd years later. He said this, as I was preparing to be a pastor, he said, Mike... Among the occupational hazards of being a pastor is care fatigue. You're going to care for people and care for people. And one of the things you need to be wary of is just losing your capacity to care because there's so much put on you. That was such a good word. And this happens to people with the gift of mercy. Maybe you have the gift of mercy. Sometimes if you have the gift of mercy, you don't even want to come to a place like this because you sense the hurt around you. And you have that capacity not simply to sympathize, but to empathize. And you internalize the pain of people around you. This is why. Thank God for people with the gift of mercy. Now, if we were to look at 1 Peter 4 as we finish up this morning, what we would describe, find described there is that this serving in the body of Christ is to be by the strength which God supplies. Does that sound familiar? Hopefully that rings a bell. It's by the grace of God. The word gift itself is the word charisma. Which you perhaps know, but maybe not know, is that in that word charisma is the word charis. We have a, more than one young lady in our church whose name is Charis. 
That's the Spanish pronunciation. Maybe it's the Spanish pronunciation of the word grace. That's what it is. So these gifts that are given to us are grace gifts. And they are given to be exercised not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit of God. I hope you understand that the key to having sound judgment about ourselves is to have the right viewpoint of ourselves in Christ. That it's He in us who works His way out through us to accomplish His purpose and gives us purpose as well. There was a man who was visiting the National Gallery of Art in London. He went into one of the big rooms there and it's quiet there. He was looking at these masterpieces hanging on the wall representing various eras in the history of British art. And he noticed there was a group of students that appeared to be there. They were young adults, and each of them had a drawing pen and a drawing pad in hand. And they looked at these great masterpieces, and they were drawing, they were drawing. And he would notice as they drew, sometimes they would tear off a piece or a leaf of that pad and kind of crumple it up and put it in their pockets. As he was getting ready to leave, he was walking out the door, and as he left, he noticed something he had not seen when he came in. There was a large wastebasket there, and beside it was the person who was standing guard over the art in the room. And so as this man left, he asked, what is this trash basket for? And this is what the man said. That's what the art students drop their conceit in as they go out of this room. Those young men and young women were learning what it means to be humbled before the masters. The Lord calls us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt us. Franz Joseph Haydn, the great Austrian composer, perhaps his greatest work was the creation It was not written until late in his life, this oratorio. It was written and finished in 1798. The last performance of this great work in which, at which rather, he was in attendance was held in London. He was so frail and ill that he could not walk into the concert hall. He had to be brought in in a chair. And his chair was seated in a prominent place. And as the symphony began to play, and the vocalists sang their parts in the various movements of this great oratorio, they came to the part where, from the book of Genesis, the words, let there be light. It was so overwhelming in terms of its impact upon the audience, that the audience did something that they had never done before. In the middle of the oratorio of the creation, they rose to their feet with thunderous applause and they turned their attention to Haydn as they applauded. And then this feeble old man, this man who was a genius and had worked hard to produce this beautiful piece of music, shook his head, he shook his head, 
And he said as he shook his head, he could barely be heard, but those near heard what he said. And the others watched. They knew what he was really saying. He said, not from me. Not from me. Everything comes from above. Everything comes from above. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Lord has given us life. The Lord has given us peace. The Lord has given us grace. He's given us faith. The Lord has given us everything we need for living this life. This life is not about you, nor is it about me. It's about our Lord And the sooner we understand that, that we have been gifted by Him to serve Him by serving one another with the gifts which He has given to us so that He might be honored, the sooner we're going to see our feelings of inferiority vanish because our focus will not be on ourselves, but on our Lord and His people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for this opportunity to worship You today. We're asking You now, Lord that these truths will not soon escape our consciousness, that we would be changed as we trust in You for everything. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.